Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. We're going to be looking at Lesson 173b, Satan's Hour of Darkness, Part 2, which is actually Part 4, but nonetheless. (laughs) Matthew 27. And once you get yourself parked there, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to assemble together freely to delve into your inspired word, your inerrant, inspired, wonderful, living, breathing word that tells us how to get to you through your son, the only way to you, to have access to you, but it is available to all. It's all-inclusive. We thank you so much for the truth of Jesus Christ and all that he suffered on our behalf. We cannot even begin to praise you and worship you for that truth, that love that had no limit, that was willing to condescend to the lowest humiliation and suffering that we can even imagine. No man has encountered what our Lord encountered on our behalf. Lord, we just ask now that you would lift him up through this uh, last look of, of our study this year before we get to the crucifixion, which will begin, Lord willing, in the fall. We thank you, Lord, for all you have taught us this year. And we just pray, Lord, that we can um, give back to you somewhat of what you have given to us by serving you and loving you and praising you each and every day, redeeming our time wisely and being lights in this dark world for you. Now I ask again that you would bless our time together. Use your May your Holy Spirit use your word to uh, speak to every heart here. I know every heart will be, will be um, spoken to through the word because that is your promise. Your word does not return unto you void. So we pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Well, it was about the sixth hour by Roman time and the approximately six hour long, six phased trial of Jesus was finally over. There had been six accusations also brought against him uh, by the Jews to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And Pilate stated his verdict of innocence six times. We'll see the sixth time today as he washes his hands and again pronounces Jesus' innocence. Um, Yet, in order to protect his own relationship with Caesar and also to prevent the mob outside the praetorium, From an all-out revolt, Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they, the mob, required. Pretty pathetic. That's what it says, Luke 23, 24. He gave them their way. In Mark 15, 15, it says that he was willing to content the people. He was willing to please the people. So what did he do? He released Barabbas, and he had Jesus delivered over to be crucified. The crowd had won over his own conscience. Friendship with the world had won over friendship with God. Caesar had won over Christ. Injustice had won over justice. And surely it looked, it looked like Satan had won over God. But did he? No, no, no. God was about to do what he does best. He was taking that which Satan and sinful men meant for evil, and he was using it to accomplish the best good that this world has ever seen. It was the hour when the Son of Man would be glorified. It was the hour for the corn of wheat to fall into the earth and die so that it would bring forth much fruit. You and I are part of that fruit here in this room today. 
It was the hour when the Son of, Son of God would glorify his Father with the ultimate obedience, an obedience that would bring billions of eternal souls into his Father's house so that they would be part of his eternal kingdom and glorify him forever and ever. Now, there are three outline divisions to our last look of this two-part study of Satan's Hour of Darkness, which we have extended into a four-part study. <laughs> and we're going to begin by looking at the action of Pilate right before he released Barabbas. And what was that action? What did he do? He washed his hands. He tried to wash his hands of this whole issue of sentencing Jesus to death. So we're in Mark, I mean Matthew, so let's look at the denouncement of a coward as we read verses 24 and 25, okay? Matthew 27, starting at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. In other words, take him and crucify him. Then answered all the people, notice that all the people, not just the chief priests, but all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. Isn't that awful to say that? Mm. All right, let's see, that was the only two verses I was going to read. So uh, after declaring Jesus innocent five times and then receiving that veiled threat that would likely jeopardize his position with Tiberius Caesar and possibly even his life, and also, as we just read here, realizing that a tumult was brewing and that there could be a riot and bloodshed between the, the angry, threatening, caw, crow, crowing crowd. Remember, they sounded like crows calling in the ears of God, which I thought was very appropriate. But that there could be bloodshed between that crowd and the Roman soldiers. What did Pilate do? He gave in. He surrendered. The white flag, you know, he surrendered. He saw that all of his efforts to compromise with the wicked, envy-filled Jews and the injustice that they were demanding of him and at the same time tried to also salve his conscience by not condemning Jesus to crucifixion, all of that effort had come to nothing. He had prevailed nothing. It did not matter that there was not a single, single accusation that could be supported to justify his condemnation. That didn't matter. Pilate consented to the Lord's death by way of Roman crucifixion. It was completely wrong, wasn't it? Completely wrong. It was judicial murder, and Pilate knew it. So he gave one final testimony of Jesus's innocence, and this makes his sixth testimony as to the innocence of, this, of Jesus. If you throw in Herod Antipas's statement of innocence, how many times is that? total of seven times from the Gentile representatives of the Gentile world. And Jesus was completely innocent. Seven is the number of completion. But this is now the sixth time for Pilate. And uh, he gives that statement along with a hand-washing ceremony. He does this in order to tell the Jews what he thought. You know, he thought that Jesus was completely innocent. And he also does the ceremony in order to try to absolve himself or to free himself of guilt in the whole matter. By, by performing this custom, Pilate was publicly announcing that the death of Jesus was murder. And he was wanting the stain of that murder to be um, washed from his own hands. As he washed, he verbalized what he was attempting to do in absolving himself of the crime. He said, I am innocent 
I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Who else had called him a just person just recently? His wife, remember? When she told him, look at verse uh, 19. She said, have, not, have thou nothing to do with that just man. And now he's calling him a just man. But he's saying, um, I'm innocent of his blood. So both with both the washing and with his words, he was seeking to rid himself of the responsibility of, of, of Jesus's unjust death. And where was he trying to put that responsibility? He was trying to take it off of himself and put it on the Jewish people, the Jews. And although they were indeed more guilty than Pilate, this little hand ceremony, hand washing ceremony, did not absolve him of his sins, did it? It didn't absolve him of his sin of having scourged an innocent man. It didn't absolve him of his sin of having allowed the cruel mockery by his own soldiers of an innocent man. It did not um, absolve him of his sin of then crucifying an innocent man. It's not what a person does by the works of his hands or by the words of his mouth, really, that absolves him of his sins, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what all other religions try to do? They try to do something with their hands to get rid of their sins or to say something, you know, to say a prayer or something over and over again to absolve themselves of their sins. But that doesn't do it. Poor Pilate, you know, he wanted to release Jesus from condemnation, but he did not, did he? He also wanted to release himself from sin, but he could not. He could not, unless, well, there was one way. What could he have done? Turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive him. Doesn't Pilate remind you of someone else a little bit? He did me as I was studying this. He reminded me of Judas in that Judas also felt remorse for his sin, his part in having taken blood money to betray the innocent blood. Remember, that's what he called it, the innocent blood. And what did he do in his futile attempt to try to rid himself of the burden of guilt that he felt? What did he do? He tried to give the, the betrayal money, the 30 pieces of silver, back. Here now, you see, Pilate also confesses again that Jesus is innocent. And like Judas, he tried to rid, rid himself of his troubled conscience for being involved in murdering this just person. But neither man, neither Judas nor Pilate, turned to the Lord. You know, Judas went to the Jews, didn't he? And, and Pilate also went to the Jews and washed his hands in front of them and said, you know, I'm innocent. It's your fault. Both men should have gone to Jesus to ask his forgiveness for their sins. You know, this is the truth. Both of them, even as bad as they were, Judas and Pilate would have been forgiven if they had asked Jesus to forgive them. He would have graciously, graciously forgiven them. It was, in fact, for that very purpose of forgiving men like Judas and like Pilate and even like the chief priests and even wicked Caiaphas and Annas and Herod. It was for wicked people like you and me that he was going to the cross, that he willfully allowed them to betray him and to try him unjustly with all these trials and to beat him without cause and to condemn him although completely innocent and to crucify him that's the reason he did it isn't it was to be able to forgive them of their sins and write paid in full stamp paid in full judas scripture says and this is interesting judas did what what did he wind up doing he went out and he went out and hung himself 
that's what uh, scripture tells us. Now, history tells us that Pilate was deposed of his position due to yet another set of circumstances, this time having to do with the Samaritans. Do you know he was the governor over not only Judea, but also Samaria? Well, a few short years later, the Samaritans, had, they had a little issue. He got in trouble with Caesar, and guess what happened? He was deposed of his position. Just what he was so hard trying not to do. And, and very reliable historical sources say that he also went out and hung himself. Now, I don't know, you know, we can't be dogmatic because there are other sources. Tradition says that he, he became a Christian like his, they say his wife became a Christian. I hope that's true, but there are some reliable sources that say he hung himself too. Well, after having washed his hands and made his ultimate or his last untrue statement um, as to his blamelessness in the matter of condemning Jesus to death, he said, see ye to it to his soldiers. And that's in verse 24. He was surrendering. He was giving the Jews what they wanted. I am sure that he was very disgusted with them. And I am sure he was probably also very disgusted with himself because he was a compromising coward, wasn't he? This whole thing was about the fear of man and um, not, you know, and putting self before justice. Well, when the crowd saw that they were finally getting what they had wanted, which was a crucified Jesus, they wouldn't settle for anything else, you know, not even a stone to death Jesus. They wanted a crucified Jesus. Then they seemed to suddenly feel somewhat gracious toward Pilate. He had given them what they wanted, so now they were willing to give him what he wanted which was to be exonerated, to be cleared from the responsibility for Jesus' death. It's just absolutely incredible to read in verse 25 that then answered all the people, all of them, his blood be on us and our children. Isn't that a frightening thing to say? You know, it's one thing to take responsibility for something upon yourself, but to put that on your children and your grandchildren and for the next, all the generations, isn't that just frightful? Now, of course, this statement did not absolve Pilate of his guilt. It did not absolve He's still responsible for his own sin in all of this um, before God. But it did announce the Jewish people's acknowledgement of their own guilt in the matter of shedding the blood of Jesus. And this has been recorded in Holy Scripture, the eternal word of God for all mankind to read. Now, they certainly did not understand what they were doing. They did not understand that they were killing the Lord of glory. They didn't. They did not understand that they were killing God in human flesh. They thought that they were ridding themselves of a false Messiah, one who dared to claim to be the Son of God, which to them was horrific because they believed in you know, strict monotheism that God was only one person. They could not, even though scripture gives many indications that God is three persons, they could not accept that. And so they did not understand what they were doing. Um, what they did was sin, nonetheless. They killed an innocent man. And yet the Lord in his grace would die for every single one of them. And he would save them and toss their sin into the deepest part of the sea if they would later repent and turn to him. Now, some of those people likely did in that mob that day. 
turned to him after the resurrection. We know even some of the priests, the chief priests, turned to him later on, and they were forgiven. Remember, he interceded for them, even on the cross, when he said, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. And then the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3, when he was speaking at the temple gate beautiful, he spoke these very gracious, divinely inspired words. He said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, who ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate was determined to let him go, but you denied him. He said, but ye denied the Holy One and the just. There's that term again, the just. And desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Who was that? Barabbas. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We saw him resurrected from the dead. And he says, and now, brethren, I wot not. In other words, I know that through ignorance ye did it as did also your rulers. I know it was through ignorance. And then he went on to say, Repent, repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Is that not grace? That's grace. The problem was that Israel, now there were individuals who did repent, and their sins were blotted out. But as a nation, corporately, And as a people group, they did not repent of their sin, of having killed the Lord of glory. They didn't turn to him and ask him for his forgiveness. And therefore, the curse they placed upon themselves, his blood be upon us and upon our children, has resulted in the branch of Israel being broken off the tree of God's redemptive blessing. It's been broken off and grafted on has been us, right? The church. Romans 11.20 says that it was because of Israel's unbelief that she was broken off. Did you get that? What was it? Why was she broken off? Was it because she killed Jesus? No, it was because of her unbelief after he was killed and rose from the dead. That is why she was broken off. And yet, there in Romans, the Apostle Paul went on to say that he did not want his readers to be ignorant of yet another one of God's wonderful mysteries. What was that? Well, it was that the spiritual blindness that has come upon Israel will end. You know, Israel now is under divine spiritual blindness. That's, that's part of her chastisement for what she did. In, you know, not killing him, but in her unbelief. And Israel as a nation is spiritually blind. Now, there are people, Jewish people, who have come to the Lord. I was witnessed to by one of them and, and was saved because of that. There are Christian Jews out there, praise the Lord, and I think their number is growing. Um, And many will be saved during the tribulation. But as a nation, she's still spiritually blind. But Paul tells us that that blindness will be lifted when? At the end of the times of the Gentiles. When will the times of the Gentiles end? No, you gave the same answer they did yesterday. Not at the rapture. The rapture happens before, at least I'm a pre-resurrection rapturist, I mean pre-tribulation um, rapturist, I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. Um, and then there's the seven years of tribulation, and then you have the second coming, when Jesus comes, you know, ends the battle of Armageddon. That is, that's going to be the time, end of the times of the Gentiles. Because Antichrist, you know, the Gentiles are going to be ruling during the tribulation. 
So that is when she will finally have her, her blinders taken off. And Romans 11.26 says, and all Israel shall be saved. She will be saved corporately as a nation and as a people group. Why? Why will she be saved? Well, it's because God made a covenant with her and God does not break his word. He is not finished with Israel. He keeps his covenant promises. But until the time of the second coming, the Jewish people and Israel serve all of us, the rest of the world, as a continual warning that is a very, very fearful thing to reject the prince of life. The nation that desires to rid itself of God and of his word and of his son should not be surprised when God gives that nation what they ask for. That's what happened to Israel. You know, they rejected him as king, the father as king in the Old Testament, the son as king when he was here on earth. They still reject him to this day. They'll continue to reject him in the tribulation, you know, and accept a false king. And when a nation says, we don't want God in our schools, you know, we don't want God in our government. We want to, you know, separation of God and state and all that sort of thing. And God will give them what they want. And we pay the price, which is not a good price. And there is this too, the nation that turns its back on those who are still God's chosen people, Israel, the Jews, will suffer what is still in effect, and that is God's word. You know, God made a promise in Genesis 12, 3, and that verse is still in the Bible, and God still holds to that. He says, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. He was speaking to Abraham and his descendants. It is a fearful thing for a nation to turn its back on Israel and the Jewish people. And history has shown that that is God holds to this promise. Every nation that has turned their back on Israel suffers severe consequences. So every day of your lives, please pray for America that we will not turn our back on Israel. Please, please, please. That is so critical for our country. Well, how many times altogether then did Pilate say that Jesus was innocent? Six times, right. How many different times um, or ways did he try to evade condemning him to death? Take a guess. Six. (laughs) Six. He started out by saying, you take him and judge him yourselves. Then he tried to send him off to Herod. That was number two. Number three, he tried to use the Passover custom of amnesty. Number four, he brought him out after scourging him so that hopefully the people would feel sympathy on him and say, okay, that's enough, let him go. Fifth, he said, you take him and crucify him yourselves. And sixth, remember the sought to release him, last concentrated effort that we read about in John nineteen twelve. That was, uh, I don't know what he did, but that we'll just count that as one. So six altogether. But Pilate was trapped by his own flawed, sinful character. He should have just released Jesus. You know, from the very beginning, when he first said, yeah, no, he's not a threat to Caesar, he should have released him time and time again. He should have just released him. He could have released Barabbas and also released Jesus because he said Jesus was innocent, but he was trapped by his own character. Pilate was afraid of the consequences. Now, the consequences, if he had just released Jesus, the consequences would have been difficult because the mob was on the verge of a riot. There would have been unpleasant consequences. But don't you think that God could have taken care of Pilate? You know, I I think God would have taken care of Pilate if Pilate had done the right thing. It would have been far better for him 
than either the Jews' care of him or of Caesar's care of him. Because as I told you, (laughs) that which Pilate dreaded most happened anyway. He would have been a lot better off to put himself in God's care than what happened. Because he was, you know, he did get in trouble with Caesar not long after this, and he was banished from his position and perhaps even committed suicide at the end. So it's always, you know, don't look at the consequences of what you might suffer from the world's perspective. Look at, you know, trust everything to God. You're in his care. He'll take care of you. He'll do way better than this world would ever take care of you. Well, we read in Matthew 27, 26. Let's look at that real quick second part of our outline i forget what it's called because i didn't write it down what's the second part of the outline you don't have your book one person so i can the death sentence of christ all right let's look at that in verse 26 <clears throat> then released he barabbas unto them and when he had scourged jesus he delivered him to be crucified all right uh, that sounds a little confusing doesn't it? we'll talk about that in a minute well, we read here, and also over in Mark fifteen fifteen, it tells us basically the same thing in Luke twenty three twenty five that Pilate released Barabbas. Now, Luke tells us in his account that Barabbas was in prison for sedition against Rome and for murder. And who do you think Barabbas probably murdered? Likely a Roman soldier. Okay? Now, isn't it kind of ironic, to say the least, that... Um, it's kind of ironic to release to the Jews the insurrectionist against Caesar when they, the Jews, had just declared their utmost loyalty to Caesar. You know, we have no king but Caesar. But, Pilate, would you please release to us that prisoner who hates Caesar so much that he murdered for the cause? Is that not a little bit... Hypocritical? Are they not hypocrites through and through to the very end? We have no king but Caesar, but give us Barabbas because he hates Caesar. <laughs> well, we never find mention of Barabbas again. This is the last time in the scripture. Um, and this was interesting. I don't know if that's in the books or not. But the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew tell us that Barabbas's first name was Jesus. You know, Jesus, Jesus, was a very common name back in that day, like John. Very, very common. And um, so his name was Jesus Barabbas, which is really interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, we certainly know that this man, Barabbas, could not, when he was released, he couldn't help but be made aware of what happened. You know, when he was released, he'd say, well, what, what happened? Why am I being set free? <laughs> this is wonderful. Um, he would know that he was guilty of the crimes he was accused of. He would know he killed somebody, that he was a murderer, that he was insurrectionist, and, and maybe wasn't even repentant about it. But he knew he was guilty and would find out that Jesus was not. That Pilate, his judge, had declared him to be innocent, Herod declared him to be innocent. He would find all that out in time, right? And while it is true that Jesus did not really die in Barabbas's place, you can't really say that Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. Because the custom at Passover did not entail the release of a prisoner only if another prisoner took, took his place in prison. Okay? That wasn't the custom. It was just to release a prisoner. You didn't have to replace that prisoner with someone else in the prison who would then die in that prisoner's place. But, I don't know if you followed me, but it's not technically right to say that Jesus died in his place. But Jesus di- did die instead of Barabbas. He died instead of Barabbas. Probably on the cross that would have been Barabbas's cross. 
Now, it might be that Barabbas was such a thuggish brute of a man that he never reflected on that truth that he died that he was freed because Jesus, you know, died in his stead. He might never have reflected on that. But I don't think that's likely, do you? Do you remember what Barabbas can mean? Two things. One, it means bar means son of, you know, bar, and then Barabbas, rabbi, son of a rabbi. Jesus, son of a rabbi, would have been raised in a home where the scripture was taught, the truth of God, the true God and scripture. So I would think that he did reflect on the fact that a righteous man died instead of him. It's difficult to imagine that he didn't become aware of the news that Jesus rose from the dead. It's difficult to believe that he didn't become aware of Jesus' followers and the widespread news of, of what, what had happened there at the tomb. And I like to think, don't you like to think, because I'm an optimist, I like to think that Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, the son of his rabbi father, gave his heart to Jesus, the son of God, the father. But whatever happened, we will find out one day. We get to heaven, let's look for Barabbas, okay? Let's look for Pilate, let's look for a lot of people. <laughs> oh, but whatever happened, we do know that God intends for Barabbas to be a parable for every one of us. You know, there are no coincidences in the Bible about names or numbers, but names are always significant in Scripture. So he is meant to be a parable for all of us because we all ought to die. We are all guilty. We all deserve to die. But Jesus did die in our stead, in our place. And by accepting that truth and by laying down our arms of rebellion, because aren't we all insurrectionists? Weren't we all at enmity with God? Yeah. By laying down our arms of rebellion and being willing to believe in our hearts that God hath raised his son from the dead, the Bible says that we will be forgiven of all of our sins. And we never need to die the second death. We don't ever need to be eternally separated from God. Isn't that wonderful news? And th this is the genuine opportunity which is available freely for all mankind. Whether Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or, or Jewish person or whoever. Human secularist, Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas, you name it. That news is, that opportunity is available freely for everyone in the whole world. And that is not narrow. That is all inclusive. The opportunity is broad because it is all inclusive. There is one way. Truth is narrow. Two plus two is always four. Yes. Okay. Excuse me. Truth is narrow. That's just the way it is. But it is for all. And that's grace. All right, we come now to something that is just awful. It is just awful to think about this. And I don't know if you ever have before, but it is very possible that the Lord may have endured yet another session of mockery by the Roman soldiers and even possibly a second session of scourging. If there was a second session of scourging, it would have been very minor. He would never have survived. And they did have different degrees of scourging. So if he did encounter a second one, it would only have been probably a few more stripes. But, but the second session of mockery is, is very real here. And the reason that this seems to be the case is because of the placement 
and contents of both Matthew 27, verses 27 to 30, which are also duplicated over in Mark 15, verses 16 to 19. Now, they are very similar, and both of those are given at this point in the narrative, okay, which is after Pilate consented to Jesus' death and turned him over to be crucified, turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Let's look. I'm not going to turn to Mark and read his account because it's almost identical, but let's look now at, um, at Matthew 27, verses 27 to 30. It says, you know, this is after he released Barabbas and delivered Jesus to be crucified. In verse 26, then it goes on to say, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall, and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and they took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. All right, there are, um, well, let me go back a minute. Do you know for our extended chronological study of the life of Christ through all four Gospels, I have been using Dr. A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospel. He's considered to be one of the best, who put all the Gospels together to the best of his scholarly, conservative knowledge, and he did believe the word was inspired by God, but he put them to, together um, chronologically, and that's what we've been using. You know, so Jesus did this, then then he did this, etc. We go from Mark to Matthew, etc. And he believes that <clears throat> that this took place at this particular time after the release of Barabbas and sending Jesus off to be crucified. Um, now, if this is correct, then the Lord did encounter a second time of mockery by the Roman soldiers. Now, there are other good, godly Bible scholars who disagree and say that the two passages in Matthew and Mark are the same. They describe the same mockery that we read of earlier over in John 19, verses 2 and 3. Let's look at that real quick. John 19, or just listen to me, and you'll remember. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Okay, so there are, you know, these two sides of the issue. Some say this is a separate time of mockery. Some say, no, it's describing the same one that John did. Okay, and there are many similarities to be sure. It's differ difficult for us to really harmonize the chronology because you remember if you look at John 19 starting at verse 4 going all the way to verse 15, John gave us all kinds of details in the conversation between Jesus and Pilate that we didn't have in the other accounts. So it's very hard to harmonize. But these similarities seem to indicate that the three writers, John, Matthew, and Mark, wrote of the same thing. There's that crown of thorns, right? There's the purple robe. And what else is there? The mocking, you know, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, to Jesus. Yet, there are also some very major differences in these accounts. Now, it could be that John left out some of these details, these differences, because having written last, you know, Matthew and Mark wrote before John. John wrote last. Maybe he didn't include them because he knew Matthew and Mark already did. And I don't think that we're going to come to any firm conclusion on this issue. I don't think we can really be dogmatic about whether the Lord was mocked on two different occasions or not. 
one following his horrific scourging and the other one right before his crucifixion. You know, they always would scourge somebody right before they crucified him. That was the procedure. So I don't know that we're going to be dogmatic about it, but we could. We do know this was Satan's hour. And anything is possible. Anything is possible. But let's look at some of the differences between the mocking of Jesus by the Romans described here in Matthew and Mark from what we already discussed earlier back in Lesson 172, found in John 19, verses in 2 and 3. And that way you can see if you agree with Dr. Robertson or if you agree with the others. But when the soldiers led Jesus away, this is in verse 27, into the court, according to Matthew and Mark, they called together, do you notice this, the whole band of Roman of soldiers. And the word, therefore, band, refers to the Roman cohort of soldiers. It's the same word, you know, that we talked about earlier, a cohort of soldiers. Back when they went to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was a cohort? It was one-tenth of a legion. A legion was 6,000. One-tenth would be 600 soldiers. It refers to the whole cohort. That's what it says, the whole cohort of soldiers. Now, this cohort would very likely then consist of most of the same men who had accompanied Judas and the Sanhedrin members earlier that night into Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, because I doubt there were two cohorts there in Israel at that time. So, you know, these guys are still up, and it's probably the same men. And that this would mean that this is the same bunch of guys who had fallen backward like dominoes when Jesus spoke his eternal God name, which was, I am. Now, there was no mention back in John's account of such a large number of soldiers present during the mockery that followed Jesus' scourging. In fact, most bombing commentators say that those soldiers who mocked Jesus back then, right after he was scourged, consisted of Pilate's bodyguard, which would be far less in number. They were just his bodyguard, and they're the ones that, you know, mocked him and put the crown of thorns on his head. Now, it may be that those men, the bodyguard, who were far less in number, now saw, now that Pilate had turned Jesus over to the soldiers, to them, they now saw their opportunity to let the whole cohort in on the fun. You know, Pilate had turned them, him over to them for crucifixion. So why not get the entire cohort involved in mocking the one who had humiliated them in the garden when they all fell backward? You know, now it was their turn to reciprocate. So they gathered together the entire cohort. You see how this could be? This is a possible scenario. We do know that the whole cohort, 600 men, were involved in this mockery. And that right there is just terrible to think about. Well, we are told that the soldiers stripped Jesus. That means they, they stripped him naked and they placed upon him a scarlet robe and pressed a crown of thorns into his brow. Now that agrees, doesn't it? That agrees with what took place in John 19 too. And although a different word for, a different Greek word for robe is used here, in Matthew than what was used in John. The similarity makes it look like both men, John and Matthew, are describing the same event. It is possible, you know, when, when Pilate tried to talk to Jesus about the Jews' claim that he had made himself the Son of God, that he might have had that mocking crown and robe, purple robe, removed from him. You know, he was, he was spooked. If this is the Son of the Jews' God... 
I better take that mocking crown and robe off of him. And so it could be that he had his, his, his own bloody, you know, one-piece white linen robe put back on him. And that would make it necessary for this cohort now of Roman soldiers to, to strip him again and to put on another scarlet robe and another crown of thorns. Or maybe, you know, the other one, the crown of thorns was just there and they picked it up and put it back on his head. If that's true, then they had to impale that back on his brow. And, you know, and it would pierce his, this, the thin skin of his brow again. Um, and, and maybe they did this in order to show the other soldiers, you know, maybe the bodyguard of soldiers did this to show the other sh- soldiers how they played their little game of mocking the king of the Jews. Now, by the way, I almost hate to get into this, but I will, just so you understand the limits, the depth of, uh, of what the Lord was willing to do for us. But the Greek word in Matthew that is u- used for the robe that they put on him is the word chlemis, and it is the word, word for a short cloak that only went to the elbows. You know, it's kind of like a picture of a cape, like Little Red Riding Hood, her cape, you know, and it, it would tie at the, at the throat, but it only went to the elbows. And this was unlike the one that Herod put on him. You know, the one Herod put on him to mock him, he and his men of war, was a long robe. It was a completely different word, went all the way to the feet, and it was white glistening like the robe a king would wear. This was a short cape like the, like the Roman soldiers wore. But what this means, if you think this through, and, and uh, Chuck Swindoll brought this to my attention when I was reading his book, Behold the Man, means that this would expose the naked body of the Son of God from the waist down as he stood before all these men, 600 of them. And knowing the crude godlessness of these kind of men, especially toward the circumcised Jews, it's no wonder that we are not told of the obscenities and, and the coarse comments that they made in addition to saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then, <clears throat> dissimilar to the report by John, who, who again may have just omitted this because he knew that Matthew and Mark had already included this, but uh, the soldiers, we are told here in Matthew, took a reed and they placed it in the Lord's right hand. Like the the crown on his head and the scarlet cape, the reed was mocking his kingship, right? Because, you know, it was mocking a a king's scepter. And then what did they do with that reed? And it wasn't a flimsy kind of a grass weed. It was like a cane stick. What did they do with it? They used it to beat him on the head. John said they smote him on the head with their hands. Here we are told they smote him on the head with a reed, a hard cane. So you know that's going to just press that crown of thorns further into his brow. Awful. John made no mention of that. They also kneeled before him and then laughingly hailed him as king of the Jews. And then they spat on him, which John did not tell us about either. So if Matthew and Mark had not included this detail about the spit, we would not know that the Lord's own prophetic words earlier back in Mark 10, verse 34, had been fulfilled. Back in Mark 10, he was speaking to his disciples, and he had said that the chief priests and the scribes would deliver him over to the Gentiles, and it said, he said, and they will mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. So far, to this point, in the three trials of Jesus before the, Gentile, the Gentiles, the Romans, do you know there had been no report of spitting? Who, who had spit on him so far? 
you remember, it was the Jews. The Sanhedrin members were the ones who had spit on him. But so far, there had been no spitting or no record of spitting on him by Gentiles. So if Matthew and Mark didn't tell us this, this would have been some prophecy that went unfulfilled for all we knew. Now, however, in Mar- and Ma- and Mark, oh, I got this wrong in my notes. In Matthew 27 and Mark 15, we learned that the Gentiles also spit on him. Isn't it interesting? The Jews spit on him, the Gentiles spit on him. The Jews mocked him, the Gentiles. You know, so it just goes to tell you the whole world is responsible for, for the death of Jesus Christ. He was a comic, meek, pathetic figure to the Roman soldiers. So they humiliated him. I'm sure they, they cursed him and they said all manner of obscenities against him. They mocked him. They degraded him in every possible way. Now, the contents of the last verse of this section, verse 31, here in Matthew 27 and the comparable parable, parallel passages in Mark 15:20, when we are told that they removed that cape, Notice they didn't remove the the crown of thorns. It does not say they removed the crown. It says they removed his cape. So when you picture Jesus on the cross, he probably still had the crown of thorns on his head. We're not told that they took that off. They just took the cape off, and they put his own clothes back on, on him. That's why he had his own clothes on when he was carrying his crossbeam, and they went when he laid down and they were crucifying him to the cross. What did the Roman soldiers do? They They... They cast lots for his garment. He was wearing, you know, they took it off, of course, before he went on the cross, but they were um, casting lots for it. Well, anyway, these words were then, it says, and they led him out to crucify him in verse 31. Do make it seem that this was an additional time of mockery from what we found recorded over in John 19. You know, in John's account, it said nothing about dressing him back in his own clothes. And that account was followed by bringing Jesus forth before the crowd and saying what? Behold the man. So, and, and here, this account is followed by they took him out to crucify him. So it looks like it is perhaps two times of mocking. But anyway, I'll let you make up your mind. Those are the similarities. Those are the differences. You can look at it yourself and decide what you think. Well, in summary, let's go back real quickly and consider the sufferings of Jesus. And when I started reviewing, I had to ask Terry, where do we start the year in September? Because I could not remember where in the world. And she looked because she wrote it down. She's more organized than I am. And she said, we started with the Lord's high priestly prayer. Right before he went into Gethsemane, the last thing he did was that wonderful intercessory prayer on our behalf, you know, for his disciples and for all the rest of the world of believers, too. We spent five lessons on the Lord's high priestly prayer. And guess what? Then we went into the sufferings of Jesus. Do you realize almost the entire year has been spent on looking at the sufferings of Jesus and he hasn't even gotten to the cross yet? That kind of boggled my mind when I started thinking we could have called this year the year of looking at Jesus's pre-crucifixion sufferings. Because his sufferings actually began in Gethsemane. Once he finished that high priestly prayer, he went into Gethsemane. And in there, what happened? He prayed so hard in such agony that his vessels burst and and blood came out of his pores. He actually sweat drops of blood. That's suffering, isn't it? And then there was the pain. This was painful for Judas to betray him. One of his own friends. One of his own apostles. And he betrayed him how? With a kiss. That's got to be painful. That's even more painful than physical suffering. And then when he was arrested, they bound him. And you know they didn't do it 
gently. He was bound in heavy chains. And then there had to be also the sharp pain of Peter's denials of him three times. And then he was taken to Annas, and we remember his first blow, you know, a smack to the face, was by one of Annas' servants. Remember that? And then he was questioned by Caiaphas, and when the Lord testified about the Son of Man himself coming in glory one day in the clouds of heaven, giving reference to Daniel 7, Caiaphas understood that he was claiming deity and he pronounced blasphemy. And the members of the Sanhedrin took that occasion to spit in his face and to to buffet him. Remember that? Fist punch him in the face and in in his body. Then they turned him over to the temple guard who blindfolded him and hit him in the face and challenged him, you know, mocking him. You know, who smote you, Jesus? Prophesy unto us. And then, of course, there was the mockery of Herod and his men of war that he also went through. And, of course, then in his Roman trials, we have learned of Pilate's repeated um, attempts to, to placate the crowd so he could release Jesus, the worst of which was that he had him go through that halfway death of the scourging. Even though Pilate had said he was innocent, 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 he had him scourged. And we talked about the horrible physical pain of scourging. And then after the scourging, some Roman soldiers or, or, or um, bodyguard of Pilate put on his brow a crown of thorns and that purple robe, and they too mocked him. And then there was the suffering, the humiliation, think of this, of being displayed before the growing mean-spirited mob in that kind of condition. I don't even know why he walked out there on, you know, on the platform, but he was displayed for, before all the people. In, you know, where he was so separated, he didn't even look like he was human. And, he, and he's before them. That's, that's painful, that kind of humiliation. When Pilate said, behold the man, and then later he said, behold your king. And, and the deep, deep sorrow he must have felt by being rejected by his own people. They're, you know, people he had done nothing but good. And they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, away with him, give us Barabbas. That's painful, isn't it? To be rejected like that. And then if Matthew and Mark speak of yet another mockery uh, session that followed the release of Barabbas, then the whole cohort of Roman soldiers again put a crown of thorns on his head and a short cape and exposed his nakedness and spit on him and hit him on the head with a reed before he was then handed over to be crucified. All that even before the crucifixion. Did you ever know that before? Do you see then that the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, even before his crucifixion, were absolutely appalling? People who do not know the scripture cannot appreciate all that he endured as the silent lamb of God who willingly suffered and died in our place. And as we've also learned this year, all of this was predicted. All of this was prophesied ahead of time either in the Old Testament scriptures or by Jesus himself to his men. Or even sometimes he spoke prophecies to the Jews. He knew what was coming. There was scarcely a detail that was not foretold, was there? It's all there in the scripture. None of this caught uh, caught him by surprise. None of his sufferings caught him by surprise. It is not that Jesus attempted to do something in his ministry that didn't turn out the way he had planned that it didn't turn out the way he anticipated. 
which is the spin that is given by liberal theologians and apostate theologians and Bible teachers. Oh, you know, well, that wasn't what he planned, but it just, you know, went, went awry and, oh, poor Jesus got crucified, etc. The things that happened to him were not a surprise at all to him. Rather, his mind was filled with the knowledge of these things from the very beginning of his ministry. He knew about them. Rather than avoiding them, he could have avoided them, couldn't he? He knew they were coming. He knew they were going to spit on him. They knew, he knew everything awful they were going to do to him. So couldn't he have just slipped away and gone back to Galilee or even left the whole country of Israel? He could have. He knew ahead of time what was coming. But instead of avoiding all of these things, we are told that he had set his face like flint and re- resolutely approached and accepted them all in full knowledge of every single blow of it all. And now I have a very important question for you. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Why was all of this necessary? You know, why were all the pre-crucifixion sufferings necessary? Why couldn't Jesus have just been executed quickly, speedily, and by some much more humane way? You know, even stoning to death was a lot faster. Yes, we know that he had to have his blood shed. He had to shed his blood for what? For the remission of our sins. But why all of this drawn-out suffering? Why did he have to go through all of this awful stuff? You know, the humiliation, the nakedness, the rejection, the betrayal with a kiss, the buffet punches to the face, the, the crown of... Why all of that? What's the point of it from the divine perspective? Well, it is because all of these foretold events, which were fulfilled, expose something that humanity wants to close its mind to. And that is just how sinful sinners can be. Apart from events like this, humanity denies the depths of its own depravity. Go out in the world, take a survey. Go stand in Walmart doors. You know what most people will tell you? Human, natures are, uh, human nature is good. You know, it's basically good. Most, most people are good. That is what most people will tell you. They deny their own depravity. What does the Bible say? Something completely different. The heart is desperately wicked. Evil. You know, no man can know his own heart. So it takes, sometimes it takes outrageous events to prove that God knows the human heart better than we do. No one otherwise would believe the scripture when it speaks about just how evil man is. The total depravity of man. That we are, we are evil in every part of us. And even with the proof of, proof of history itself. And you look through history. It's been bad. What man has done to man. What man continues to do to man. Even the animal world isn't that bad. It's horrible. Yet many still deny it. And they cannot accept that men and women are basically good. Or, I mean, they, they, they cannot accept that they're basically bad. So how is God to convince unbelieving people of what is actually in their heart unless occasionally he allows it to be on display? Now, from the divine perspective, it most certainly is why our Lord had to endure all these kinds of things. So that everyone would know from then on that you could be the most righteous, innocent, perfect 
human being who ever lived going about doing nothing but good to every single person you encountered, blessing children even when your own disciples were irritated by them, um, always kind to every woman who ever, cro ever crossed your path. And that would be unique for a man, wouldn't it? Be kind to every woman who ever crossed his path. Uh, always healing every sick person brought to you. Give, uh, and enabling every leper to be cleansed. Um, what else did he do? You know, and it gave sight to the blind. All these good, even raising the dead. You could be that kind of person. And the human heart could burst out with this kind of cruelty and abuse you in the ways that we have seen this whole year. That's what God wanted to show us. And this shows us just how lost sinners are. And there can't be one of us in here who excludes ourselves from all of this. You know, we look at this and we say, I would never do that. Yeah, you know why? Because you've got a new nature. You've got the Holy Spirit. But the lost man, any one of us, in the circumstances of that mob, that crowd back in that day, we could have been part of the crowd. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Yeah, by comparison... Comparison with one another, we might appear okay, because we always compare ourselves with somebody worse, don't we? But before the blazing righteous fury of holy God, none of us measure up. We all fall far short of the glory of God. Well, that's one reason for all these sufferings, so we can see the, the wickedness of the human nature. But on the other hand, when we see all the sufferings of Christ, we realize even more vividly how low he was willing to stoop in order to redeem us from our sinful natures. Just look at his love in all of this. Everything he endured before and at the cross was the consequence, now make this personal, not just of the sin of Judas, not just of the sin of Pilate or Caiaphas or Annas or anyone, it was the consequence of my sin, your sin, the Lord of glory, the Lord creator God, stooping to this level and silent, right? As they're spitting at him and all the things they're doing to him. Surely there would be a limit to the depth that he would go. But was there a limit? No, I can't imagine going any lower than he was willing to go. The Bible's account of his sufferings display for us that there is no limit. There is, his love is beyond estimation. The love of Jesus Christ for sinners is beyond the realm of any of our imagination. Would you ever be willing to go that low? All of us would say, no, I, I, I draw the limit. But not him. And each of our sins have contributed to the flood tide of iniquities that have engulfed the earth to this day in all of its miseries and sorrows. You know, every one of us, all our sins, it's just like a mountain piling up higher and higher. And we all add to that mountain, which makes this world, you know, a sorrowful, terrible place to live. The depth of his suffering is the height of the greatest miracle Jesus ever displayed. Do you know that? All of his other miracles combined don't come to the height of this miracle. I remember meeting Dr. Lehman Strauss. We had him at Our Lady's Bible study. He's, a wonder, he's with the Lord now. Wonderful Bible commentator and preacher. 
many years. You can still hear him on BBN radio. But I remember him saying, the greatest miracle of Jesus Christ was not his resurrection. You know, for him, that was really pretty easy. He's God. The greatest miracle was his condescension and how low he was willing to come for you and I. It is. That, that is the greatest miracle this world has ever seen. And we don't even know the half of it because we can't even begin to enter into what he suffered during those three hours. It was a three-hour eternal hell for him when his father turned his back on him for the first time. First and only time in all of eternity. We can't begin to even enter into that suffering. Down from his glory to humble himself on our behalf. That's why he endured all this. To show you and I how much he loves us. It's incredible. Let's pray. Lord, there are no words, there are no thoughts that even begin to be sufficient to comprehend what your son endured during those dark hours at the the hands of sinful men and under Satan's guidance. We know enough of ourselves to know that we are guilty of, of many indignities against him. Even with our new nature in Christ, we're still guilty of, of, of sins against his holiness and, and his sovereignty and, and his glory. We should glorify him with every breath we take, and we do fall short of doing that. And it is for our sins, our crimes, that he accepted all of this brutality Father, we cannot begin to thank you enough for that, for his love, for this great miracle of his condescension. We despise the callousness, oftentimes, of our spirits. Lord, it would be the desire of our hearts that I pray this is for every one of us, that that we would not take silver or gold or the whole earth in exchange for one opportunity to give our Savior the glory that he and he alone deserves. I pray that we'll fill this summer with giving him glory, serving him, loving him, praising him for who he is. We have to confess to you our sorrow and shame and that our lives are so often filled with distractions from giving him the glory he he deserves. But enable us to be filled with, with his love and to show it to everyone we encounter. Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for all that you have taught us this year. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, our teacher, and I thank you for the word of God. And we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.